This podcast contains real talk about the mayhem of motherhood, along with a weekly medical mystery. Because all of these topics can be pretty graphic, and because we use explicit language, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Motherhood, Mayhem, and Medical Mysteries podcast. On this show, we are not attempting to solve the major medical mysteries of the world or tell you how to raise your kids. We are definitely not doctors or scientists of any kind. We are just two moms here to provide you with support, resources, and maybe a few laughs along the way. We do a lot of research and will definitely share the things we learn, but please talk to a professional if you have specific concerns about your experiences. Here's Melanie. One of her guilty pleasures is chili from Wendy's. And here's Miranda. She suddenly loves baseball. I want you to hear something really quick. Are you listening? Yeah, I'm listening. Okay, listen. Oh, nice crack. Actually, it wasn't the best crack. She's kind of of foaming. Kind of a messy crack, actually. Yeah, is this on nitro? What did I just do in here? I unleashed oh. I unleashed the the stout. Yeah, I know. It's our uh fluffiest otter. It's, it's our fluffiest so otter. Cute. You have to post a picture of that. That is the cutest beer can I have ever seen. It's the cutest little otter with a little s'more and there's little happy marshmallows floating in the sky. So pontoon brewing. They are based out of Sandy Springs, Georgia, near oh. Atlanta. All right. Yeah. Oh, and she is 9%. So anyway, I wanted I wanted to, to show that fun. to you. It's going to get fun, y'all. Let's hope so. What are you drinking over there? Um, I just have some wine from my latest wine club, but it happens to be in the podcast wine glass that you uh, got me. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. We do have podcast wine glasses and pint glasses for sale in our merchandise store that doesn't exist yet, but we can order them on Shutterfly via email. So send us an email if you want one. There you go. <laughs> and you can drink out of a stylish pint glass or wine glass with us. With our faces on it. Uh, with our faces, our distressed faces. Oh my goodness. <laughs> So what oh what has been going on? It's like we're still within the first few weeks of school. It's chaos. Sheer chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a parent teacher conference coming up yet? Not yet. Or not that I've heard. Do, okay. do you? We, yeah, we just got the notification. Ours is coming up. Oh so, boy. So it just reminded me, and that's why I wanted to talk about parent-teacher conferences tonight later on in my segment. But it just reminded me of an epic fail from last year. And I can't remember if I told you or not about what happened with Fisher's last parent-teacher conference. I don't. If you told me, I don't remember. But, you know, as always, it's been a chaotic year. It's It sure has. So, okay. So Fisher's pretty much been in a school setting since he was three years old because he went through the Medicaid program for 3K and 4K. Right, right. That's right. Yeah, that way he could get a little extra assistance with his speech and some physical therapy and some occupational therapy. So he's been in a school setting for a while. Like, we know the drill. We know how to drop him off. We know how to get him his backpack. We know how to get him to his teacher's class and all of these things. And so, but that, he did 3K and 4K at a school across town because it was before we moved to this side of town. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And one of the reasons we moved to this side of town was because the elementary school here is just fabulous. They have outstanding reviews and just really, really great academic performance. So we wanted to to be in this neighborhood that was zoned for this particular elementary school. So we went through all this trouble when Fisher was four, right before kindergarten to get him moved and situated so we could start kindergarten at the really, really nice elementary school. Right? Yes. It sounds like a brilliant plan. Always a brilliant plan with me that usually uh, dissolves quickly. So (laughs) 
we get everything arranged and you know of course he's got his 3k and his 4k years worth of iep documentation information we have to transfer all of this to his new kindergarten teacher as well as the new school psychologist and the physical therapist and the speech pathologist and all of these people that are involved with him in his iep team so we're getting everything transferred we're providing all the records we're getting everything arranged and the kindergarten teacher had had emailed me and said hey you know we're looking forward to getting fisher in our class and we want to make sure we've got everything covered so we're going to set up our our parent teacher conference i'm like cool i know this drill i have been in the iep meetings i've been on the counselor side of this so i know exactly what's going on here like this is my jam so she's coordinating all of this. We're finding a time. Again, there's like eight people on the team that are going to be assembled for a 30-minute Zoom call to to talk about getting Fisher ready for kindergarten. And there were some emails bouncing back and forth between me and my husband because, you know, he had to work. I had to work. We're going to take the call on our lunch break. So a right. little extra coordinating kind of went into this. I, I mean, but it say, feels like you basically felt like you were Leslie Nope with all of your assorted documents all oh, organized yeah. and yeah. you're, I've you're got good. It all. Okay. Yeah. I've got it all together. I've got it all together. And then uh, the day comes and I completely forgot about the meeting. To- just forgot? Forgot? I I can't even tell you what I was doing or where I was. I completely forgot about the meeting. And next thing I know, and and to make matters worse, so did my husband. Oh, no. I was going to say, so he looks like the most responsible father, but no, no. he. I'm telling you, I don't know, like, Mercury was in retrograde or something, because that is not typical of, of me and Brad at all. And, I mean, we've been through this drill. Like, we did it for 3K. We did it for 4K. Like, we're ready to do it. We're trying to make this good impression on the new nice school and the new great kindergarten teacher and this new team. And I am telling you, we completely forgot like did not show for the meeting. It was terrible. I felt so bad. I, I honestly, I'm baffled though because you are always so organized with everything. I mean, you have like a monthly printed calendar on your refrigerator with I like know. your plans for like three I weeks know. out. Yep, yep. And everything's in my planner. Everything's in my phone. Everything's on my work calendar. But for whatever reason, this didn't make the cut. So and I felt so bad because the poor teacher emails me like that night and she's like, hey, so we're really sorry we missed you at the call and we're really and I was like, oh, shit, that was today. <laughs> It was terrible. It was the worst. I don't even know what happened. I was going to ask you, that's how you found out you remembered? Like, it didn't dawn on you. No, she emailed me. She emailed me. I had complete... I That's how far I had forgotten about this from my brain. Totally gone. Totally gone. Yeah. So, so she emails me and I felt like just pea size. And I, I email her right back and I was like, Oh my goodness. I am so sorry. I cannot believe we let this happen. La, 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 la. And anyway, she was like totally, she, she wanted to reschedule. She needed to reschedule. There's so many people involved in this plan. Yeah. And he's a new student at a new school. So we did make it happen, but that was not a great first impression no, <laughs> at all. Definitely not. Definitely not. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> How funny. So I want to make sure that our our other mayhem mamas out there don't encounter that level of embarrassment. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know what, though? If you do, you're not alone. It's it's happened. It, it, it happens. That's right. And I just have one kid. How do people do this when they have multiples? I can't even wrap my head around it. I can't Goodness. either. I can't either. Kudos to all of y'all who are mm-hmm. shuffling three kids to different schools with different meetings. And, whoo, man. Respect. So to segue off of my very embarrassing and borderline humiliating absenteeism. Absenteeism, yeah. From the parent-teacher meeting. (laughs) 
What medical mystery do you have for us tonight? Well, I was trying to think of what we should talk about, and I have a whole list. So, so don't oh, think yeah. I'm running out of topics. There's a whole list. No, but we have boards. I do try to make them timely, if at all possible. And this episode comes out on September 11th. So I oh, thought yeah, that I would cover the illnesses of the first responders at 9-11. Because I've wow. heard tidbits about that. And, you know, it's been in the news and the mm -hmm. media forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been over 20 years now. But I just kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit and kind of get to the bottom of what was going on there. Wow. Okay. What an interesting topic. And I can't believe it's been 20 years it's been, since 9-11. It's been over 20 years. It's been 22 years that blows my mind. What a, it really is like one of those things. And I don't think we've had anything like that to that magnitude, like until COVID probably, where like probably. you remember where you were. No, and I, I was actually just going to bring that up. Like in my, in my father's generation, it was when JFK was assassinated. That's right, it, like, which yeah. that dates him. He was actually in high school in study hall in the auditorium. Man. But for our, well, for mine, I'm a little older than you, but for <laughs> my generation, the 9-11 thing is very, mm. very profound. And mm -hmm. I was I was in college and had just walked into an economics class and a kid that I knew mm -hmm. said, hey, did you see the news? And then the whole day was whew, after wow. that. Nobody wow. knew what to say. Professors didn't because we didn't know what was going yeah. on. Yeah, right. And so my biggest worry at that time is I had lived with two girlfriends of mine the year before. And mm -hmm. one of them had moved to Manhattan. Oh, my goodness. So I was one of the many millions of people trying to call Manhattan. You know, this was pre-text yeah. message. Cell phones and text, like, yeah. It, mm -hmm. So I'm like on my Motorola phone trying mm -hmm. to call Manhattan and couldn't get through. She she was fine. But where were you? Wow. You would have been much younger. So you were in what, yeah. middle school? <laughs> yeah, I was in middle school. I want to say I was in either, I think I was in sixth grade. And at my school, this is so weird, but we had overcrowded our school so bad because uh, it was an elementary school and the middle school was about to expand, but we were still in the elementary school space. So our classrooms were actually under the gym in, wait for it, the boys' locker room. Ew. <laughs> that's, where, that's where we had our class. I'm telling you, girl, I'm from the hills of Tennessee. I mean, and that was ew. That was the space we had available. So it was literally like they had makeshifted the uh, sixth grade and it was my history or geography class or whatever. And, you know, we're like in this little classroom, but there were like benches kind of in between the chairs or like our desks, I remember. And then the <laughs> lockers were like all around us. It was very echoey. I remember like our, our teacher kind of just like turned on the TV and we just like kept the TV on all day long. Like yeah. when I went to all my different classes, we just kept watching, you know, the channel one school news or whatever it was with the the live coverage. That is okay. First of all, like I'm not going to downplay 9-11 at all, but that sounds like the most horrifying classroom I have ever heard of in my <laughs> entire life. And maybe it's because I watched it when I was way too young, but oh, I gosh. do not hang out in locker rooms. So yeah. let, let's get into this a little bit. I tried my hardest to stick strictly to the medical stuff, but it is a mm -hmm. much bigger picture than just the medical stuff. So sure. this is going to be a broad overview of what all went down. I'm going to start with a quote by a gentleman named John Feal. That's F-E-A-L. He will come okay. up later in our spotlight. He said, most Americans just think that two buildings came down that day and innocent lives were lost to senseless violence. And that did happen. But many don't know that tens of thousands of people got sick and many have died since from their illnesses contracted at ground zero. So I thought mm. that was like fair point. It was a very yeah. tragic event on its own, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's a whole lot more than that. So we're going to talk a little bit about how all this went down. There are many critics that assert that government officials, and they named names, 
all downplayed the extreme health risks in the area and rushed to reopen the area around ground zero, even though it posed a grave and immediate health risk to first responders. I did a bit of research on this, but it seems like it was very commonly known (laughs) that, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of common sense. This isn't a safe area for people to be. White House officials actually informed the head of the EPA that they expected the financial district, which is very near Mm -hmm. ground zero, to reopen on September 14th. Just three days later. Three days later. When she was first told that, she replied that that would be extremely cumbersome and and nearly impossible because the EPA was still trying to judge the health situation and whether or not it would be safe to allow people in that area. The, The EPA was pressured, as was Giuliani, to provide reassurances that it was healthy in order to reopen Wall Street. Well, sure. I mean, that's like the global headquarters for financial activity. Yeah. Period. Right. Like, right. If you, right. If the financial district in, in New York City is not up and running and churning, I mean, that's huge for the global economy. Correct. So I'm sure they were under a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. That stamp of approval and say, go back to work. And, you know, it's not like back then they had the technology that we do now where they could deploy folks out. Right. And, you know, people could work remotely. They didn't have that. People had to go punch the clock and, you know, they had to go into that boardroom or that big like area like on Ferris Bueller's Day Off where they're like through the glass with their their hands, like throwing the sign. Yeah, with all the TV screens everywhere. They had to be in that room from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They couldn't just go to the house and work in their recliners. No, they definitely couldn't. And and I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to say that it wasn't an important thing. It absolutely was. However, there were some costs to it. Which, which And it sounds like they kind of knew that some of those risks were there and they had to kind of skirt them to get things up and running. On that note, there was an article that was was released in the New York Daily News that was reporting that there was a major air quality issue. And in response to that, Mr. Giuliani said, the air is safe as far as we can tell with respect to chemical and biological agents. The problems created are not life-threatening. Pressure does weird things to people, and then mm-hmm. they make decisions that hundred percent well said <laughs> be made. <laughs> yes, yes. So the other thing that was going on, kind of behind the scenes, and this is even more corrupt. And this, I, this is just a little tidbit I'm going to put out here. In 2001, in November of 2001, Giuliani himself actually wrote to the congressional delegation of New York, that area, urging the city's liability for ground zero illnesses to be limited. So they were putting stuff in place like they they knew what was up. Come a few years later, there was a scientist from the EPA. She said that the officials had lied about the air quality in the weeks following September 11th. And it was her opinion that they knew how toxic the air was. The dust included asbestos and disturbingly high pH levels. It was an interview with CBS, and it was a Dr. Jenkins from the EPA. She said that some of the dust in that area was as caustic and alkaline as Drano. What? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. We're not talking like it's a little bad. You shouldn't breathe that. We're talking like long-term health condition level like Drano is no joke. Nobody should be breathing in Drano. And and then to further the corruption on this whole situation, and I'm sure that this had to do with pressures and whatnot as well, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation conducted a study at the World Trade Center site shortly after 9-11, but refused to release the results, their official statement Hmm. being that it was part of a criminal investigation. 
Oh, dear. Well, that throws up some red flags, does it not? A hundred percent. Now, granted, (laughs) it was the site of an investigation because when that first happened, and I mean, in all honesty, do we really know exactly what happened? Like, No, we never will. We'll never know the full breadth and scope of what went down that day. So all of that to say there was a lot of pressure and a lot of stuff going on with a lot of people that were not telling the truth because... Basically, the economy of the world more or less depended on it, I would say. I'm not an economist, but I would say... There was a lot of pressure. Correct. Yeah. On 9-11, nearly 3,000 people died. And to date, it is actually still the deadliest terror attack in world history, which Hmm. is interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure I knew that. No, I mean, it's terrible. 3,000 people is a lot. That's so many people. And so many... Innocent people, like so many people just going about their regular nine to five work regular day. day. And I mean, the stories that have come out of that are just so oh, yeah. heart wrenching. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's absolutely terrible. Oh, yeah. And to think about the the levels of society that all of those people lived in, like all the way up oh, yeah. to like incredibly mm-hmm. wealthy people to, you know, just your regular Joe. So 3,000 people died on 9-11, but in the 20 years since then, the number of deaths among survivors and responders continues to creep up. Now, granted, it has been 20 years, so there would be a normal uh, uh, amount of They're aging. Correct. Researchers have actually identified more than 60 types of cancer and about two dozen other conditions that are directly linked to ground zero. Wow. Yeah. So since 9-11, over 4,000 responders and survivors who have been enrolled in one particular health program, which I'm going to talk about more Mm -hmm. in a a little bit, they have died. So over 4,000 that are in this Mm -hmm. study. It's the World Trade Center Health Program. And it is open to members of people who were exposed, whether they were first responders, survivors, volunteers, because there were a lot of volunteers. You remember yeah. they, were, they were trying to go through the rubble and all right. of that. It was incredible. That group, the World Trade Center Health Program, has about 112,000 members which that in itself is estimated to only be a fraction of the number of first responders that there were. They estimate that there were over 400,000 people involved, either as first responders or cleanup crew workers. And all of those would have breathed in the air. The Drano air. The Drano air. So about 74% of the people that are enrolled in the health program that I mentioned have been diagnosed with at least one physical or mental health condition that's directly linked to 9-11 exposure. And about 20% of those have cancer and 28% of those have mental health conditions. What was the cancer rate? It was 20% of the people that are in that program, the World World gotcha. Trade Health Program, about 20%. And 28 with mental health. Yes. So what conditions, you might ask? Because I, you know, I was curious. That was actually the original yeah. intent of my research was just to figure out the conditions. But it's such a bigger picture of a story. Yeah, yeah. Cut out the first part. At least I don't think so. So the last really, really big study. I mean, there's some ongoing stuff, but there was a very large, comprehensive study that was completed in 2017, and they found that the following conditions have been linked to the 9-11 folks, the first responders and and cleanup crew. Rhinosinusitis, which Mm -hmm. is an inflammation of your nasal passages, but like Mm -hmm. it doesn't go away. Like these Mm -hmm. people still have it. And it's what, 22 years later. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, so GERD. GERD. Ooh, that's a bad one. You and I both had that both real bad yeah. while we were pregnant. That is that's miserable. A bad one. Yeah, it's not a fun, not a fun thing to live with at all. Asthma, sleep apnea, cancer, PTSD, respiratory disease, COPD, depression, and a number of anxiety disorders. 
So lots of predominantly respiratory and lung related right. issues. There actually are on their website, you can you can look this up, but the World Trade Center Health Program lists over 80 conditions that have officially been attributed to 9-11. So wow. as I mentioned, the dust from the collapsed towers was basically just wildly toxic. It was thousands of tons of debris from the collapsing of both of those mm-hmm. towers. And most mm-hmm. of it was pulverized concrete, which yeah. concrete is made up of a lot of different substances. More than 2,500 contaminants in pulverized concrete. So it's not something that that you're ever supposed to breathe in. There were also, of course, asbestos because it was it was an older building. So there's asbestos in a lot of things and lead and mercury. There were traceable amounts of lead and mercury all in the debris and the air and all of that. That can cause a lot of, yeah, issues. And and another thing about concrete, this is random, but I just learned it recently. A lot of coal ash is actually used and recaptured to make concrete. That makes sense. And you know, that's not great for you either, right? <laughs> right? No. Mm-mm. There was also, the, and we, I'm talking all about like the air quality from the collapsed towers yeah. and all of that. But then there were also unprecedented levels of dioxin, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And that was because the fires that were burning like you might remember this from some of the photos and the the fires burned for three months i didn't realize that for three months there were still fires on the site of 9-11 for three months so you can imagine we're talking about how terrible the debris is and it's also burning Well, and I mean, you're talking about volunteers and, you know, in some cases, even family members. And I'm sure like first responders have been trained and maybe they've got like some PPE and like things that would protect them a little bit. Oh, but by and large. Oh, no, no, no. They don't even have PPE. That's that's coming up. But that was actually one of the biggest issues. No one was and I mean nobody was prepared for this. Not none of us were. I mean, maybe somebody if you're a conspiracy theorist, I'm sure somebody thought they knew whatever. But us people down here on the ground didn't know that this was coming. They didn't have the proper PPE at all. Some people oh, were using dear. just medical masks, but considering the amount of asbestos and how toxic sure. the other things are, they actually needed specialized equipment. Oh, yeah. And those were not available on site for several weeks after. Dear. Oh, my goodness. So, like when the air was the most toxic, they weren't available. And that's when the most people were out there. Right. Well, and you can understand why, because they were pulling people out of the rubble. Like there was a subway station that went under there. Like they had to get those people out. They couldn't be like, oh, we have to wait until the masks come in. Yeah. Not going down there till I have my PPE. No, that's your, that's your family member. Those are your neighbors. Those are your friends. Like you're going in. People were making that sacrifice for the sake of saving others or at least attempting to save others. Yeah. And this is kind of what they've, they've had to deal with since then. Mm. I mentioned earlier a list of the common conditions. The two most common conditions are actually the chronic rhinosinusitis. And I'm just recovering from a situation where I had a very mild case of what I would call sinusitis, which is Mm -hmm. swelling of your nasal passages. It's Mm -hmm. miserable. I cannot imagine having that 20 years later. Mm -hmm. I know in the scheme of things, when you think of people being really sick, that maybe mm-hmm. isn't like, oh, well, that's not that big of a deal. It's not in the mm-hmm. scheme of the serious conditions that exist, but it's miserable. That makes your everyday miserable. And then the GERD is the second. So those are the top mm. two. There is a particularly high amount of prostate cancer. 87% of first responders were male. 
So, okay. and they've done okay. some studies to determine, because I mean, a certain number of men are going to get prostate cancer anyway. It is mm-hmm. a much higher occurrence in these folks that, mm-hmm. that helped out. Well, but a lot of the things that you're talking about, lead, mercury, asbestos, all of those are endocrine disrupting substances that right. are going to primarily affect and impact your immune system and your hormones, your hormone system Correct. primarily, which of course, prostate's in, involved with that. Yeah. Now, I mentioned that, you know, the politicians and whatnot were downplaying the significance or or how toxic this work environment could be. But these long term physical and mental health impacts came as no surprise to clinicians and health researchers because they just they anticipated it. They saw what was going on. So so they anticipated that there would be 9-11 related deaths long after the disaster. There was a period of time where it was being refuted, like political situations were arguing, saying, well, those people would be sick anyway, essentially, Mm -hmm. which is the audacity, right? (laughs) Yeah. But today, the link between 9-11 and uh, this long list of chronic health problems is indisputable. Nobody's arguing Mm -hmm. that it's not related. Of course, the hardest hit group of first responders was actually New York Fire Department, FDNY. They had more than 15,000 firefighters and emergency services staff and civilians. They have more than 15,000 that are enrolled in the World Trade Center Health Program during 9-11. Because I don't know if you remember, they were already rushing into the buildings before they collapsed. Like FDNY FDNY was on their way up and the towers collapsed. So they actually lost... 343 of their staff on that day, which is insane. And then they've had more than 200 who have died since then, which Mm -hmm. even if you take into account that it has been 20 years and some of them were older, that is a very high number. That's a high number. That's a very high number. And to think that like their quality of re- of life was reduced so much right. from all of these other issues, like you said, the the sinusitis and the GERD and everything, like what a sacrifice. Yeah. Well, now the there there's been a number of studies specifically on the firefighters, and it was found that those who arrived first, like the first on the scene, actually had the worst impairments. Obviously, Mm -hmm. those who survived, I know a number of them were killed in their rescue efforts, but those who survived actually had the most significant lung and breathing impairments, and those mostly presented themselves within the first year after the attack. But what Mm -hmm. happened with this is, and, and, you know, if you have smoke inhalation or other kinds of respiratory exposure, in most cases with time and proper treatment, that will improve. But many Mm -hmm. of these FDNY guys had ended up with what's called pulmonary fibrosis, and that does not improve. So they got very sick and they stayed very sick which is really Mm. sad. And I'm sure that that has a lot to do with the number of deaths that have occurred over over that period of time. But even taking the lung issues out of the whole situation, Mm -hmm. over 20 years since 9-11, over 9% of FDNY veterans of 9-11 still suffer with PTSD and over 18% have depression. Sure, sure. And, wow. and I mean, that's that's just a staggering amount of people to still mm-hmm. be struggling. But if you think about it, those types of organizations, people are a team and they work together and they lost over 300 guys all in right. one day. That's their brothers. That's yeah. their family. So it's, it's really, really tragic. Goodness what gracious. layered on that has made it more tragic is all of the controversy and nonsense yeah. that has occurred since then. Yeah, I didn't go into a whole lot of that, but I did want to mention one thing. There was a, a film by Michael Moore, which we all know Michael Moore makes kind of, he was the bullying for Columbine guy. He makes kind of oddball documentaries, but there was Mm -hmm. in his documentary, which is about the healthcare system in the U.S., which this came Mm -hmm. out some time ago, but it's called Sicko. Hmm. He actually 
interviewed and talked with a group of 9-11 rescue workers and volunteers who, Mm -hmm. you know, they volunteered and were helping, but they were denied treatment. Like they, they were denied that, like they didn't qualify for whatever programs were out there. And in that movie, which this is absolutely crazy, him and a whole bunch of them are traveling from Miami to Cuba in order to get the free medical care that Cuba was providing to detainees at Guantanamo Bay at the time, which wow. I mean, obviously he did this to spotlight what's going on. Like, sure, that's right, crazy. Yeah. We have had some serious issues about this, mm-hmm. and there's been lots of back and forth and lots mm-hmm. of celebrities involved. I would say probably the most involved is John Stewart. He, you know, it was after The Daily Show. That's right. He has been in front of Congress arguing and has some really brilliant things. If you all are interested in in any more information on this, look into any of the stuff that he's written or interviews with him about this. But finally, in 2010, the U.S. Senate did pass the 9-11 health bill. And Jon Stewart was involved in this. It was not for a super long period of time. And it just within the last 10 years has come up for a renewal. Mm -hmm. And they finally did approve that. But there is a lot of stuff out there. Um, It's formally known as the James Zadroga 9-11 Health and Compensation Act. And James Zadroga, I'm sorry about how I said your name, James, was a New York police detective who took part in the um, efforts at Ground Zero and then developed like significant breathing complications. Mm -hmm. So it's named for him. So quite a controversial topic for us, but I thought it was very timely considering uh, this episode comes out on Mm 9-11. There is so much information out there. My thoughts go out to all of the friends and family members of everyone that was involved in in any of the situations that happened on 9-11. And then also with these first responders, because... You know, right, what a right. thing. And and the mm-hmm. volunteers, you know, I mean, yep. thousands of volunteers that came out to try to help and yeah. have really they've really had to fight for their health care. I'm really glad that you shared this because it's like, you know, these tragic events happen and it's like we tend to focus on the day, like the immediate effects that were felt and how terrible and just absolutely horrifying they were. But I think, you know, one of the the key things that we forget is there are still people living with the aftermath of this. Yeah. And it has profoundly affected their physical, mental, emotional health. And it's impacting their families and their communities, you know, at, at large as well. And I think, in general, like you said, this is such a great time to remember our first responders, be thankful for our first responders, be thankful for the services that that they provide because it is it's part of their job. And they're just they're going to they're going to do their job. They're going to go into the burning building. They're going to do what they need to do to try to save people's lives. And they're putting not only their lives at risk, but their their long term health as well. So Absolutely. that's a really, really good thing for you to bring to our attention today. I will talk a little bit more in our spotlight coming up about some some different organizations that you can get involved in. But I learned a whole lot from that. And yeah. it kind of changed my whole thinking. Because like you said, I was just thinking about, oh, that day and how tragic all those people that died. Yeah. But to think of the hundreds of thousands of people that have been impacted by the ongoing situation, it's, it's really profound. Thanks for sharing. Okay, Miranda, I'm I'm ready to be off my soapbox, but I, I got really <laughs> passionate there for a minute because you this, did. This was a whole situation, and who <laughs> I spared you all many of the details, but wow! So, if I remember right, you told us that you were gonna try to help us be prepared for a parent-teacher conference if we remember. It's happening. <laughs> Remember that it's happening. That's right. That's step one. 
<laughs> yes, 100%. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And we apologize, listeners, that we don't have a better segue from 9 11 to your parent teacher conference, but there it is. If we're good for anything, it's a random ass presentation of content. So you can just tell us all about it <laughs> in, in your review. So I want to talk about parent teacher conference. How can we prepare? How can we make sure we're successful? And how can we help our kiddos take the information that we learn from? that meeting and really apply it and have a great school year. So first of all, I know you're probably wondering, what is a parent-teacher conference? Go ahead, Melanie, wonder it. (laughs) I mean, as far as I know, and granted, my child is only in fourth grade and several years of his education happened during COVID, so nothing was normal then. It's just where you go in And you meet with the teacher and then they always tell you, like, at least in my experience, they tell you like three nice things about your child and then like two things that they need to work on. (laughs) I love it. I love it. The feedback sandwich. Yeah, we'll get to that. So these meetings usually happen twice a year. They're usually going to be with you as the parent and the student may or may not be there, but the teacher is definitely going to be there. And in some cases, there may be a combination. If your child does have an IEP like my son does, there may be other teachers and service providers involved in this meeting as well. But the whole goal is to talk about your child's progress academically, socially, behavior-wise, homework-wise, emotionally performing-wise, and even issues that they have with friends. So it's really kind of a a good holistic way for your teacher to give you a rundown of, of how your child is just overall doing in their class. So teachers can share academic progress based on classroom observations, which is kind of qualitative, but they also can have like some hard data in front of them too, like test scores, assessments, portfolios, assignments, grades, all of these kinds of things. One of the things that I think we we don't emphasize enough with this is from the teacher perspective, for the most part, teachers really are interested in hearing from their students' parents so they can learn more about their, their students. So I think, and I'll get into this later, but just keep that in mind. It can be a really good opportunity for you to kind of give a sense of what are some of your family values and what is your parenting style and what strengths and weaknesses or challenges have you noticed with your child as well. A huge part of this, too, can be to discuss enrichment, intervention strategies to support learning. Like you mentioned, Mel, the, the two things that we need to work on, yeah. those those are going to come up. And for parents, you know, the, the goal here is to really just make sure that we're aligned, that we have a good understanding of our child's behavior, our child's performance, and just in general, their progress. I did want to share, and I don't know if I'm brave enough to put this out on Facebook, but I saw this really interesting meme, and it was like a generational thing, and it was like the 1950s. It's like a little comic strip side by side, and it's the parent-teacher conference, and the teacher is like giving the parent some feedback about their child's performance, which was not great, and the parent then takes that information and starts kind of laying into the child a little bit. Like, you need to do better. This isn't acceptable. I expect more out of you, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like a flash forward to like modern day. And the the teacher's giving the same feedback to the parent. Like, oh, you know, your child needs to make this kind of improvement, blah, blah, blah. And the parent is now yelling and kind of fussing at the teacher. And, you know, I I expect more out of you and it's your fault. They're falling behind in all of this. Yes. Anybody who has any friends that are in education, that is a very accurate in many situations. That's very accurate. Yeah. And and I mean, I hate that. And, you know, I have family members who are teachers and I have a lot of friends who are teachers or have been teachers. And ultimately, your child's teacher wants your child to succeed just as much as you do. But that can't happen without this alignment and this acknowledgement right. that we all are a team. We all need to work together from whatever vantage point or, or playing field we're on. So again, just have that emphasis of, of alignment. And I think there certainly are some generational things at play. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) 
Okay. So first of all, I want to share, I am not alone in missing one of these important meetings. And maybe some of our other Mayhem Mamas have done this too. But the U.S. Department of Education actually did a study back in 2008. And they found that more than one in five parents reported that they don't regularly attend these meetings. Oh, you're not at all. I'm not alone. That's like 20%. You just didn't want to be on that team. (laughs) I had to make sure I had that stat in there just for my own, (laughs) just to make myself feel better. But really, this isn't great because, again, when we think about alignment, we want to make sure we're we're on the same page with our teachers. We want to make sure we're giving our kids the best chance that that they have to be successful, the best support that we can give them. And I am sure that teachers get super frustrated when parents don't show up because there's a lot of prep work that teachers put into these meetings too. They, for the most part, will have a lot of training around this. They'll have agendas put together. They've already had some some basic information that they've pulled. And truthfully, I think most of them are probably excited to talk about your kid with you. And so it, it's probably a good thing to, to show up. Yeah, definitely. Or what I mean, like most especially don't make the appointment and then not keep it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the worst thing that you could do. Case in point right here. Yeah, I do think that that's a common problem, though, in all aspects of education right now, because even a month or so ago when we had Jonah's open house, that that teacher had put together a folder for every child and we were there towards the end of it and she still had half the folders on desks. Oh, like, wow. I, I bet that's a big struggle that teachers have. Yeah. And again, you know, I'm sure they want to share this information. They want to get you in the loop and give you this information, but they can't do that if you don't show up. We need to really try to make this a a priority. And along those same lines, speaking of showing up, I do want to mention there's a lot of special situations around this. Uh, If you are a divorced parent, if you are a single parent, if you are a guardian or a foster parent, there can be a lot of considerations for separate conferences, separate meetings things like this. And just make sure that you talk with your child's teacher ahead of time about your preferences so that they can accommodate. They'll be more than happy to accommodate you however you can. But wherever possible, again, I think it's important to try to maximize alignment between you and other parenting partners or or co-parents or whoever else is going to be involved uh, so that you can make some positive progress around the results of the meeting. Another key point to keep in mind is that your child's teacher most likely has to meet with every single parent in like one day or like two or three days tops. Yeah. And that's a lot. That's a lot. Just imagine if you were the teacher and you had like 18 different parents you had to meet with and go over this level of detail information. And usually you're only going to have like 10 or 15 minutes with the teacher anyway. So you've got to be really mindful of that time slot. You've got to be focused with that. Try to make sure you're maximizing the best conversation and strategies that you can around helping your kiddo. Don't be rambling on and on and on, which is probably something that I would do. And just know that like if something comes up, you can ask for another meeting at a later time if there's more you need to unpack and discuss. That's a good point. So remember, this is not a two-hour discussion on your child. Have your things to say, but speak smartly not lengthy. (laughs) Right, right, right. It's kind of like going to the doctor. You know, you've got this much time with the doctor, got to make sure you get it all in there and and that you've made the best of, of that small slot of time and that you're respectful because there's another parent waiting in the hallway to come in behind you and they want to get on with their day as well. So typically what's going to happen at these meetings, if you've never been to one before, is that the teacher's probably going to have some examples of your child's schoolwork. They may have some test scores, again, some quantitative information and some qualitative information. They'll share observations of your child's class participation, any concerns that they have around their social growth or performance, all those things we kind of mentioned earlier. And again, you've got about maybe 10 or 15 minutes to get all of that out. So what can we do to make sure we get the best out of our conference? That's what we want to talk about. Yes, tell us. Tip number one. Hold up finger number one, Melanie. Show up. Yeah. (laughs) 
I was just going to say, go. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure you go. Make sure you show up. That's that's step number one. If you can at least get in the door, the teacher's going to do most of the work for you, but you just showing up and being present and willing to participate in the conversation shows a huge amount of proactiveness and involvement around your child's success. So make sure you go. All right, tip number two, have some questions ready. Make sure you prepare some questions ahead of time, anything that you're confused or concerned about. I know for me, a lot of the questions that I had were really around like specials and kind of what classes Fisher is going to for kind of like an elective time. Because the other thing that I learned with that is if he is going to work with a speech therapist or the occupational therapist or whomever, they're typically going to pull him out of those electives. So I was kind of interested to know, okay, is he going to be missing like music or art or is he going to be missing Spanish and just kind of getting a sense of like what he would be getting. And fortunately, I don't think he ever missed a piece class and my son's got a lot of energy he needs to get out so that was good yeah but, uh, bring bring that list with you so you can get an answer from the teacher or as we mentioned set a meeting later to discuss in more detail with them also a good time to tell the teacher if your child chronically gets nosebleeds that can look horrifying but aren't a big deal let her know don't worry He knows what to do. Just give him a tissue. Just an example. Sounds like that might be a a personal experience there, Melody. Oh, yes. For sure it is. (laughs) And one year I didn't warn the teacher and they were like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And Jonah was like, it's fine. I just need a tissue. Oh, wow. This just happens to me sometimes. Right. But he got sent to the nurse anyway because, you know, blood Right. Universal precautions and blood. But (laughs) if he had just had a tissue, he would have been fine. Everything would have been (laughs) a-okay. Okay. Tip number three. Hold up finger number three, Melanie. I'm on it. Three. This is, I think, the most important one that we really need to kind of do a a self-check and it kind of goes back to the meme that I described earlier. Tip number three is be prepared for feedback. Yes. And feedback comes in many shapes and sizes. And whether it's positive, whether it's more improvement focused, noticed I didn't say negative. I said it's improvement focused. Yeah, but I I saw right through what you were doing. (laughs) You always see right through my, my move here. At the end of the day, when it comes to getting feedback, don't panic. Don't take it personally. Don't take it as an attack on your parenting style and don't overreact. But again, try to see this as an improvement opportunity. So for you folks out there that speak more like I do, what Miranda just said is be prepared for the teacher to say some shit about your kid that you don't (laughs) like, but look at it as a way to improve. Yes. Thank you, Melanie. You're welcome. (laughs) And that can be so hard because we love our kids. They're like the best things in the whole world because we made them and we're just obsessed with them and we think they're so cool. But sometimes they have room for improvement just like the rest of us. And again, we're talking about alignment. So use this as an opportunity to learn more about your child and gain some perspective. Because one of the things that always blows my mind is like, sometimes I have this weird realization that like my son's teacher spends just as much time with him as I do. And I'm not present during that time, you know? Yeah. It's like, I mean, I get this kid home, I get him fed, I get his teeth brushed, and I basically read him a book and and put him to bed. She's with him all day. She's working with him on these tasks in these different settings, on these different goals. And she has a very different perspective than than I do. And so appreciating the perspective that your your child's teacher has, being able to glean from that and learn from that, I think is a really valuable thing to do, even though sometimes it can be a hard thing to do when we do get improvement-focused feedback. Absolutely. I, and I think that that's a hard thing for everyone. Like we as individuals have trouble hearing negative things about ourselves or things that we could improve. So this is a good opportunity for you to grow. 
Definitely. And and one of the, the big moves is the feedback sandwich. You know, here's a really positive thing your kid does. Here's something I kind of want him to work on a little bit or, or, you know, them to do a little bit better. But here's overall, you know, a really good thing that they're doing or a really great strength that they have, you know, that feedback sandwich. And actually, I'm not a fan of the feedback sandwich, just me personally. A lot of teachers have been trained to do that and they may do that just know that their intention and their goal is to let you know equally about your child's strengths and about your child's weaknesses and areas that they can improve and where you can maybe be a little more active in helping them to make those gains. That's all it, that's all it is. And, and to me, that's like a really great thing because if we don't know where the gaps are, then we don't know how to fill them, right? Right. So what can we do to get some better clarity around this and not overreact? Like how do we take this information objectively and try to build something from it? I want to share a list, and this comes from the National Association of School Psychologists. They suggest that you ask some questions like this. How long has this problem been observed to kind of give you a sense of the length of time that it's been going on? When did it start? When does it happen? Is there some kind of trigger or something that initiates this this kind of problem or problematic behavior? Another question you can ask is how different is your child's performance from that of others in the class? So kind of getting a sense of theirs against the the average or, or the mean. Are there similar or different problems in other subjects? So are we looking at a subject-specific issue? How is your child's attention in class? Kind of goes back to our conversation about ADHD. Is the child willing to participate? In, in activities and maybe it's it's more of a matter of ability versus willingness or is it more of a willingness versus ability? You know, is it a motivation thing or is it an ability thing? That's an important one. Yeah. And lastly, kind of what are the child's strengths? Because if we have a sense of what our kiddos are good at, we can use those things to help them improve in the areas that in which they need to improve. So, and, and again, just a note on overreacting, your teacher here, when, when they do bring these things up, they're just sharing early warning signs that something may need a little extra attention. Don't fly off the handle thinking, you know, your child has a disability or a behavior problem or something really serious. It's just a warning sign. And again, your child's teacher went to school to do this and they've probably been doing it for a while and they've seen a lot more kids than you have, you know, uh, in most cases. And so they kind of may know what they're talking about a little bit here. And and so giving a, a healthy level of, of trust and trusting their expertise can be really beneficial. Absolutely. And if I could personally add, they're not necessarily saying that your child has a disability, but if they in fact do, be open to knowing about it so you can get them the accommodations mm-hmm. and the assistance that they need. Mm-hmm. And I might be going off on a, a soapbox of mine, but I've worked in a counseling field that works with people who have disabilities for a lot of years. And one of the most challenging groups I see are these these kids whose parents are unwilling to accept that they have limitations because that sets, be open. We're all different. Mm -hmm. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses, but let's do what we can to get our kids what they each individually need, no matter what that is. Exactly, exactly. And like, you know, I can speak to this personally, because it's a tough pill to swallow, like learning that your child is going to have some limitations and some things they're going to have to face. But the very best thing that you can do is lean into the resources and take advantage of those resources that are there. So you can help your child be successful, even with the limitations that they that they may have. So right. And keep in mind that your attitude towards it is going to be reflected by your child. Oh, yes. And and I think that a lot of people have are so ego-driven that they don't pay attention to how they're reacting to something, but know that your kid is going to react to how you're reacting to a situation. So, you're modeling that behavior. A hundred percent. And so if they're going to need some extra classes to to work on their speech, don't be like, oh, you got to go to speech. Be like, this is so cool. They have a woman that's right. going to help you with some of the things that are hard for you. Right. That's very important. And I think we lose yep. track of that as very busy parents. We tend to have 
that initial reaction, but give your reaction some thought before you let your kids see it. Great tip. That is so, let's do a whole episode on that one. (laughs) That's good stuff. All right. Tip number four. I told you I wanted to spend some time on number three, but number four, we're here now. Develop that strategy for success. And one of the big problems that teachers see here is that parents don't know how to help their kids improve. And kind of like what you just said, sometimes egos get in the way. We may think we know best. And so it's hard sometimes for parents to ask for help and kind to be open-minded and willing to implement something. But I have to give my my sister a shout out here because she, you know, as a first-time parent of, you know, one one little boy who's awesome. I remember one year like she went to school and and she did get some of this more constructive feedback for her son and his performance and she basically threw her hands up and said, "Look, I've never done this before. I don't know what to do." what do you have for me? Because I'll try anything, but I just, I've never been exposed to this. Like he's my first kid. I don't have any, you know, she's the oldest in in my family. So we didn't have any basis to go on. So her son's teacher shared with her some tips and strategies. And she took those resources. She embraced those resources. She implemented those and her son began to make improvements in that area. And he is thriving and doing such an awesome job. So when we don't know, ask. Yeah. Ask. Ask. One of the things that's been really helpful for me to learn with Fisher is is he gets sidetracked pretty easily. No clue where he gets that from, but he gets sidetracked. <laughs> and so one of the things his, his teachers have given me as a tool is an anchor sheet. And we kind of just nickname it an anchor sheet to get him back oriented and anchored to the task that he was doing. And we started using this when he was potty training because, again, he's been doing this since 3K, 4K. And then we started doing it with his his backpack and putting his backpack on his hook and putting his coat on his hook because he would just rush into the classroom and throw his stuff on the floor and just rush to his center instead of taking the time to actually unzip his coat, put it on the hook, take off his backpack, put it on the hook, you know, take his folder out of his backpack, set it on the table and then go to his center. So the teacher made this little sheet for him that went by his cubby station that had pictures of each step. Yes. And then she took that same sheet with the same clip art and she put it in reverse order by the door where his hook is when we're getting ready to walk out the door in the morning. So he sees those same icons in both places and he knows first I put on my jacket, then I zip it up, then I put on my backpack, then I get my whatever the order is and he sees those same pictures. So having just even that little resource just by his backpack as a reminder made our mornings go so much more smoothly. So so it's, it's little things like that that your teachers can kind of help you with if you just ask for help. And if you're open to receiving the help. That's important. Show up and be open. All right. And the very last tip, tip number five, is follow up. Follow up with some notes to your student's teacher. And you can be as involved or as not involved as you want here. But maybe, you know, just send them an email and say, hey, we've been doing this. This is kind of what we've learned. Or how has performance changed? Because I've been working on blah, blah, blah with him at home or with her at home, whatever it is is have that communication, open up those channels of communication with your child's teacher. And don't be shy about asking uh, your child to share as well. So you can make sure, again, it's all about alignment and bringing everything together and everybody on the same page. So you can really take that step of being proactive by just sending a little follow-up note uh, to check in and see how things are going once you've implemented some of these strategies. Awesome. So show up, Be open and do all the other things that Miranda says. (laughs) And good luck out there. (laughs) You shared a little bit in your segment about the spotlight that you have for us, but can you give us some more details and information about the organization you want to highlight tonight? Yes, I 
think that this is going to be only maybe the second time that I have actually had two things in the spotlight section, Mm. but I couldn't leave one or the other out, so I put them both in. Our first spotlight for today is actually the World Trade Center Health Program. I mentioned that a number of times in my segment. The World Trade Center Health Program is dedicated to helping those who were there during and after 9-11. The program provides services to individuals who meet their requirements. They serve at present over 110,000 9-11 responders and survivors from the World Trade Center and also from the Pentagon and the site in Pennsylvania. Mm. We didn't mention those in my segment, but they help all those folks. There is no deadline to enroll in this program, and it is actually since that last extension, it is funded Mm -hmm. through 2090 which Mm, sounds crazy. But the website for this, if y'all want to look up some information, is www.cdc.gov backslash WTC. So that is a federal government program, but there's a whole lot of information on that website if y'all want to do some research on your own. The second spotlight for this week is actually the foundation that belongs to that gentleman that I read the quote from at the top of my segment. Yeah, yeah. You said you would come back to him. I did. His name was John Feal, F-E-A-L. His foundation is called the Feel Good Foundation. Oh, I love that. (laughs) That's so great. (laughs) And they assist all emergency personnel, including but not limited to firefighters, police officers, nurses, volunteers, sanitation workers, transportation workers, and construction workers. So they're they're within the Mm. United States. But these are folks who have been injured on the job in the course of their everyday lives. So Mm. their mission is also to educate elected officials and private entities about the problems that arise and the issues that are faced by first responders. It's a really good foundation. There's a lot of super interesting information on there. Their website is feel, now that's F-E-A-L, goodfoundation.com. So check that out. It's some really, really interesting stuff. If you like what you hear from us, be sure to follow our show. And if you really like us, you can leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We want to be friends with you. Connect with us on social media by following at Mother Mayhem Podcast or email us directly at mothermayhempodcast at gmail.com.